0: On today's talk, we will uh, be with Ed McMahon, a senior fellow at the Urban Land Institute and one of the country's most incisive analysts of planning and land use issues and trends. We are very excited about having him on today. But I'll start with a few call logistics. Um, after that, I'll be interviewing Ed on his insightful secrets to successful communities, followed by time for your questions. And uh, throughout the call, we welcome your thoughts, stories, and ideas on the Google Docs. Because we have more than 300 participants registered for this call today, as well as nearly 30 group listening parties, which is very exciting, uh, we do, um, again, ask that you put yourself on mute by pressing star 6 to make all the lines as audible as possible. If we need to, we will use all of the lines remotely to ensure that you can hear Ed, um, but later in the call uh, we'll we'll see what we can do to take people off mute so you can ask questions yourself. Um but please uh do put everybody put yourself on mute now by pressing star 6. Everybody do it? I'm still hearing a few people. So please press star 6 on your phone. So um and open up the Google doc. You can also add your own not- notes here. The wisdom of the crowd is one of the best things about this call. It's a good idea to skim through there now to see um if questions have already um, are already there to avoid redundancy. If you have a question during the call, please feel free to enter it there and please share your own wisdom comments and examples by helping answer the questions that are there in the Google Doc. We will leave this rich document up after the call and send it around again so all the call notes will be available to everyone after this call. You should be able to add to the document throughout the call by using the edit button. But since Google Docs can only handle 50 people as active document editors at a time, if you don't plan to add to the document, just close out and give other people a chance to open it up and edit actively. You'll be able to reopen the doc in about 30 seconds in the read-only mode and still follow along. So uh, try that. If you if you do have any trouble with the Google Doc, just try hitting refresh again. So on to our guest, Ed, Ed McMahon, is an attorney. You, uh, hi, hi, Ed. I'm just going to tell people. I think most people probably know you because you've written 15 books and over 300 articles. I think you probably stopped counting somewhere. Um, <laughs> you're an attorney, a community planner, and of course a lecturer. Uh, currently, Ed is the senior resident fellow at the Urban Land Institute in Washington, D.C., where he holds the Charles Fraser Chair on Sustainable Development. Um and he is a top analyst of planning and land use issues and trends in um in America. One of one of the very top guys. We've got him here. It is a pleasure to welcome you, Ed.
1: Thanks, Fran. Hi. Hi.
0: So so Ed, let's just just a little bit about you. How did you get into the planning world?
1: Well, my interest in this goes back a long way to the uh to the Vietnam War. I was uh, a young second lieutenant in the United States Army, and I had just finished jungle warfare training. I had orders to a small fire base in the central highlands of Vietnam, and about a week before I'm supposed to uh, arrive there, I got a call from the Pentagon, and I had a colonel on the other end of the line. He says to me, Lieutenant McMahon, do you have any interest in being reassigned to Germany? And I'm like, okay, well, let me think about that. And uh, I said, yes, Germany sounds great. I would love to go to Germany. That sounds very exciting. So I got super lucky, and I was sent to Heidelberg, West Germany, which is the headquarters for the U.S. military in Europe. I was assigned as an aide to a U.S. general, and I then spent the next two and a half years of my life flying all over Europe in a helicopter. And that experience completely and totally changed my life. But I didn't realize quite how much it would change my life till I flew home to Birmingham, Alabama, where I grew up, and I got out of the airplane, and I drove home. And for the first time ever, I saw the American landscape with a completely different set of eyes because to travel is to learn. And that's really what – uh that's how I got interested in land use planning, and that's kind of what we do here at the Urban Land Institute is try to learn – uh, about what's working and what's not working, and what could work better and land use and economic development and so on and so forth, so that's really how I got interested in this topic
0: so the focus of of your work at the urban land institute is as you say what's working and what's not working
1: well i'm the uh my my uh my focus is really on sustainable development and environmentally sensitive uh development. Uh, but that encompasses a lot of things, uh, currently I'm focusing on, uh, shifting sub, how the, how the suburbs are changing, uh, to be more compact, walkable, and mixed use. Uh, we also have a, a, a an initiative on he- building healthy places that I'm very much involved with. I've also, uh, I also participate in all of our regional visioning uh, efforts, et cetera. I want to say one thing about sustainability, however, uh, uh, you know, when I think about sustainable development, uh, you know, at its most basic, you know, a lot of times people think that's new tech, all, all about the new technologies, uh, things like green buildings and uh, electric cars and uh, solar and uh, energy and wind turbines and so forth. And we, we do spend some time working on those kind of issues, but at its most basic, sustainable means enduring. And a sustainable community is a place of enduring value. And that's one of the things we're going to talk about today, is how we create places of enduring value. Uh, back in ancient Athens, the city leaders there used to take an oath of office to leave that great city not less, but greater, more beautiful, and prosperous than it was left to them. And that's kind of our challenge here in America as well, is how do we leave our communities not less, but greater, more beautiful, and prosperous than they were left to us? And so that's one of the things we're going to talk about today are some uh, some ways to try to do that.
0: Well, be- before we get into your more specific secrets of success to successful communities, uh, you're talking about an enduring community, but how would you define a successful community? Is that different?
1: well uh you know i think success is uh you know has many uh fathers and mothers, and you know the the kind of success with me is I'm talking about are communities that are successful economically and environmentally and socially. you know we spend a lot of time talking about things that are good for business, good for the environment, and good for communities uh the truth is we spend way too much time uh in America fighting about what we disagree about and not nearly enough time sitting down together. Community by community to talk about what we do agree about, let me give you an example uh, I, I I've spent uh, uh some time in the past working on things like residential street standards and suppose uh you know you uh a developer came in and the uh the typical street standard for a rural subdivision was forty foot wide streets and suppose the developer came in and said i'd like twenty four foot wide streets well what oftentimes happens is that the uh planning commission will look at the developer like, well, you're crazy. You're trying to get something over on us. But let's think about that a little more carefully. So if you go from 40 feet to 24 feet, well, you've just uh, uh 16 feet less in pavement. Well, a number of things start to happen. First of all, uh, every house on that street becomes less expensive because streets are the single most expensive part of the development process. So more asphalt simply means less affordable housing. It also means more soil erosion, more sedimentation, more non-point source pollution running off into our rivers and streams. One acre of asphalt will generate 16 times as much runoff as one acre of meadow. So all of a sudden you start to see that less pavement means it's good for business, more affordable housing. It's also good for the environment, less runoff, et cetera, et cetera. And, oh, by the way, that 24-foot wide street is four times. It's imp- been proved to be at least four times safer than the 40-foot wide street. Why is that? Well, because the wider the streets are, the faster the cars go. So, you know, here's just a tiny example of something that's good for business, good for the environment, and good for the community, less asphalt. So that that's the kind of thing that we try to do at ULI is to look at where those win-win-win solutions are uh, things that are good for everybody. And so what we're going to be talking about today are things that, you know, a lot of what we'll talk about is economics, but uh, but we need to also be thinking about all those other dimensions as well.
0: Sure. And, it, and the other piece that seems important to look at before we dive into the successful pieces are, what are the key challenges facing towns today that are barriers to success, besides this kind of disagreement, this uh, piece? Uh,
1: You know, a lot of people don't like change, and, and uh, that's a particular thing we hear in, in small towns and around the country. Is that I don't like change. But the truth is that change is happening all the time, and there's you know, you really there's really only two kinds of change in the world we live in today. There's planned change and unplanned change, and unplanned change simply will destroy every single thing you like about the place you live. So what are some changes you have no control over? Well, the national and global economy, uh, demographics, population growth, technology, consumer attitudes and market trends, energy prices, uh, the cost of health care, the weather. All of those things are changing and will change communities whether they like it or not. So it's kind of like Abraham Lincoln used to say, the best way to predict the future is to create it yourself. And so, I think part of it is this idea of, you know, thinking that, you know, well, change is inevitable. Uh, you know, progress is optional. Uh, we can, we're gonna talk about places that get better with change and not worse. And when you just let things happen, you can either just let things happen or you can try to shape and direct uh, and control that change in a way that you like. And so that's, I think, uh, one of the big impediments is just getting over a fear of, Uh, of change and instead of trying to shape it and direct it in a way that you care about.
0: Um, Okay. So before we, uh, the last thing to to just set the stage here, you often speak also about how economic development, that there's a new paradigm for communities, that that paradigm has shifted. Could you describe that observation?
1: Yeah, well, uh, a lot of people have. You know, this is not just my observation, there's a lot of people, uh example, Richard Florida has a new book out called The Great Reset, how how the crash is reshaping North America. And he says, how we live, work, shop, and get around is changing, and communities that embrace the future will prosper, and those that do not will decline. And one of the things that he and many other commentators talk about is how the economic model, economic development model, is changing uh, in the world that we live in uh, today so in the in the old economy, it was all about like cheap land and cheap gas and low cost labor. It was about shotgun recruitment uh It was about you know putting a uh, industrial park out by the airport and trying like crazy to get some plant factory or distribution center to move there but today we've only we only built a couple of hundred plant factories or distribution centers to do anything anymore and so that it's really shifted from you know a plant that might uh make sneakers to somebody who's going to gonna design sneakers. So today, successful economic development is not about shotgun recruitment. It's about laser recruitment. It's not about low-cost positioning. It's about high-value positioning. It's not about cheap labor. It's about highly trained talent. Uh, the key infrastructure in the old economy was roads. Let's just widen all the highways, particularly in rural America. That was our economic development strategy. Let's just widen all our highways. Well, in the world we live in today, the key infrastructure investment is education, and then we also used to spend all our time worrying about what we didn't have, trying to do a business recruitment, but successful economic development today is about focusing more on what you do have, what we call asset-based economic development, and then the old economy was also driven by transactions, and today Successful economic development is driven by a vision which we harness those transactions to that larger vision, so yeah, economic development has changed a lot in America. There's a big sort going on when I graduated from college uh college graduates were kind of evenly distributed to the United States based on population density We had the same pretty much the same percentage uh everywhere. But that's no longer true because now the young people are, are, the jobs are going where the young people want to go and the young people are going where the jobs are. There's, and so certain cities, Washington metropolitan area, Raleigh, Durham, Austin, Texas, Seattle, just to give you a few examples, have, uh, over 40% of all the residents in those uh, metro areas have college degrees or higher. But you go to other parts of the country, and it's a very tiny percentage. You know, West Virginia, for example, 18%, Las Vegas, 19%, Etc. So there's a big sort going on. And then there's all this demographic changes we have on. America's getting older. It's getting younger. It's getting more diverse. We have more people living alone. So think about that. Let's say we have 31 million people living alone in America. That's one out of every seven households. Today, almost 80% of all American households have no school-aged children. And yet, for years, we built housing, new housing, like every family was the Waltons, like with the mom, the dad, the two kids, and the dog. Uh, and then think about how consumer attitudes are changing. Think about technology and the death of distance, how people can do business almost anywhere today. Today, in 60 of the 100 biggest cities in America, the largest employer is a university or a hospital. Uh I, Great example. I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama. The biggest employer in Alabama used to be the U.S. Steel Company. Today, the biggest employer in Alabama is the U.S. is the University of Alabama Medical Center, which employs over 100,000 people. Um, I mean, that's those are some of the ways the world is changing, and and communities that are. A, adapting to those changes and preparing for those changes are going to be more successful. It's not just communities. We spend a lot of our time talking to home builders and developers and telling them that the old one-size-fits-all marketing and product approach, it just doesn't work for buyer groups whose interests and uh, differ widely, not only from buyers of the past, but from each other. And so the same thing with communities. The truth is today, and we'll talk a lot more about this, if you can't differentiate yourself in the world we live in today, you will have simply no competitive advantage.
0: So to do that, one of your first attributes of success that you talk about in this recent series of blogs on plannersweb.com is to have a vision, a vision of the future, and you often say failing to plan means planning to fail. Many communities do have plans, but then then they aren't moving forward with that. How can communities create plans that will lead them towards the kind of success that you see as possible?
1: Well, you know, uh, first of all, uh, I mean, a lot of people, places play lip service to, to planning. Uh, other places are actively hostile to, to planning. But, but the truth is, you know, try to imagine any successful business that didn't have a business plan. It would be pretty hard to find investors in, in that business you know the truth is it's really almost impossible to name any successful individual organization corporation or community that doesn't plan for the future and the ble- the best plans are plans that are developed uh, really from the bottom up and that's where citizen engagement uh, comes in and the the more you know there's the old expression about none of us is as smart as all of us and so the idea is the more people you have involved in creating a plan for a community, the better that plan will be and the more responsive it will be uh, to the success uh, of that community. But, you know, it, it's so interesting. I think back, you know, I always, I think a lot to, uh, back when I was, you know, once again growing up the, the, in Birmingham, the one city in America we used to make fun of was Chattanooga, Tennessee. And... Uh, you know, Chattanooga used to be called the most polluted city in America. It was routinely referred to as a patch of rust in the Sun Belt, and nobody makes fun of Chattanooga anymore because today it's known as an international model for community revitalization. And it began with a plan for the future that grew out of something called Chattanooga Venture, and it was a, a visioning process. That involves thousands of people. I'm repeating, Yeah, I think
0: somebody needs to. I'm, I'm sorry. This is Fran. Just, um, if you just came on board, uh, please press star six, so you can go to mute, and we can hear Ed much better. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Go ahead, Ed. You
0: were talking about Chattanooga.
1: Yeah. So, so, so Chattanooga, they they basically. Uh, you know, they said they were, they were, they were routinely voted the most polluted city in America. And, uh, what they did was they got thousands of people. And these, this is the community that really sort of pioneered this idea of broad-scale community visioning. And they basically said, I started asking questions of all the people in Chattanooga. Well, what do you like about Chattanooga? What don't you like? What would you like to change? What would you like to save? What would you like to keep? What would you like to do different? And those, those questions, that vision led to a plan that over the next 20 years completely transformed that place, and and they decided to focus on a couple of things. And this will get me to this idea of focusing on your assets. They decided, you know, they they could, you know, they made a big list of a lot of things like that they wanted to focus on, maybe 100 things on that list. But they decided to focus first on downtown because downtown is the heart and soul of any community. And second, they decided to focus on the Tennessee River, which was their most important natural asset. And then they did a couple of really interesting things. They didn't take the biggest project first. They took the smallest project first because they realized that nothing succeeds like success. And so they wanted to create a sense of belief that if they actually did one small project that they could move on and do bigger projects. And so what one part of their plan was they wanted to build a, uh, uh a, uh, park along both sides of the Tennessee River for five miles and then uh, 19, uh, you know, 72 when they first proposed that, I think the cost, the price tag on it was about 20 million dollars, which is a lot of money for a small city. But Chattanooga realized something really important, which was this. They realized that how much something costs is not the most important question. It's the second most important question. And the most important question facing any community in North America today is what should we do? what should we do? And it turns out that money always follows good ideas if those ideas come out of a consensus building process. And so having a vision, so they built that park and they found the money to do it. And guess what? That park, you know, within the next 20 years leveraged about $3 billion in private investment directly next to that park. And they were able to do some pretty remarkable things because they had a vision for the future. There's a A bridge in downtown Chattanooga is called the Walnut Street Bridge, and it was an obsolete highway bridge. And the Tennessee Department of Transportation had set aside millions of dollars to demolish that bridge. But because Chattanooga had a vision, they said, hey, we got a better idea. They said, give us the same amount of money you'd use to tear the bridge down and let us use it to restore the bridge and turn it into the nation's longest pedestrian bridge which today connects one side of the Chattanooga River, excuse me, the Tennessee River with the other side of the river. So point is, you know, how much something costs, that's pretty important, but it's not nearly as important as what should we do, and that's where this idea of having a vision comes from.
0: And is it also, Ed, is that where making an inventory of assets and then building on them versus this more traditional economic
1: model comes into play? You know, as, as I said before, you know, it's, you know, we, we we need to think a lot more of sort of about, like, what we do have than what we don't have. And so for years, you know, we sort of, you know, all these communities had this sort of copycat logic uh, of competition when it came to economic development. And it was a lot of, as I said before, about sort of, you know, business recruitment, for example. Like, well, uh, we need to go and we need to get us a, a convention center or we need to have a uh Festival marketplace, or we need to have a an aquarium, for example, and, and so people would spend millions of dollars uh, competing. You know, so you know, so like you know, be, first we had like an arms race to build the world's, to build the biggest convention center in America. Most places will never win that arms race, and then you know we uh, decided, well, let's build a festival marketplace, which worked fine in places like Baltimore and in Boston. But we had 19 other cities that built festival marketplaces that went bankrupt because they just were trying to – they didn't really fit in with those communities. Uh, And then it was aquariums. Everybody had to have an aquarium, even in a place like Camden, New Jersey, which said if we could spend $150 million building an aquarium featuring the fish of New Jersey, that we could save Camden. Well, I've been to that aquarium. It is a wonderful aquarium. But did it save Camden? No, it didn't. And the reason it didn't is because successful economic developments almost never, or at least rarely, is it about the one big thing. It's almost always about lots of small things working synergistically together up of a plan that makes sense for that community. Uh, There's a wonderful book called The Living City by a woman named Roberta Gratz, and she says something I think very important about the way communities big and small grow. She says successful communities think small in a big way, and so that really is about inventorying your assets and then building all those plans around those assets. So, you know, and and those assets can be very, very different from one community to another. And you know, sometimes the assets are real obvious. If you went to, for example, Jackson, Wyoming, you'd immediately see that. Well, wow, they've got world-class scenery. They've got unparalleled wildlife resources. Or if you went to Annapolis, Maryland, you'd go, wow, they've got unbelievable historic uh resources. They've got an incredible waterfront. They have a maritime history. And so, you know, th- those are the kind of communities that said, well, let's build our plans. And, and it's not just a land use plan. It's not just an economic development plan. It's not just a tourism plan. It's all your plans around those assets. So, for example, Annapolis, well, they – uh, one of the things that they do now is they hold the National Sailboat Show and the National Powerboat Show, and those two shows by themselves bring ninety thousand people a year into those communities. Or how about Rockport, Missouri? They decided one of their biggest assets was the wind, and so they're now the first American city that gets over a hundred percent of their electric power from wind turbines. In fact, they get one hundred twenty-three percent of the power needs by the wind turbines. They put up, they sell back to the grid. Uh, in in uh, the state of Missouri. So, what, part of it is sort of doing this asset mapping, if you will, of sort of looking at what you've got and looking at how you can build on the things that you already have. You know. i So. A, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead.
0: Well, well, you've you've got seven of these secrets, so I'm going to move you through them so we can get to some of the others. So certainly okay. this asset building. Another thing, and certainly for all the planners out there, you know, you you acknowledge the importance of regulation, but you also see that it's limited when it really comes to development choices. Um, So, how does a successful community make the best development choices
1: for its future? Well, you know, one of the things that I say is that successful communities use education incentives, partnerships, and and an in incentive, not just regulation. And and I don't want people to misunderstand. I don't, I'm not saying we don't need regulation. Regulations prevent bad things from happening. They set a minimum standard of conduct, et cetera, et cetera. But, uh, you know, successful communities, you know, rarely are created by regulation alone. You need to use carrots, not just sticks. And, you know, let me give you a couple of examples. So you go to San Antonio, and they have an incredible... Uh, museum there, the San Antonio Museum of Art, uh, but for about 25 years. And that building is, that the San Antonio Museum of Art is in what used to be the Lone Star Brewery, which sat vacant for about 25 years until they used an Historic Preservation Tax Credit to restore the building and turn it into a great museum. That's an incentive. Or if you were to go to uh, the Chattahoochee Hill Country outside of Atlanta, southern Fulton County. They now use fast track approval for development inside of villages, uh, to try to get it, to get developers to build where they want them to develop. And then they discourage new development outside of there by saying we're not going to build roads, that w- the- widen the roads, we're not going to invest public infrastructure dollars. Uh, I talked uh, recently about Stanton, Virginia. Uh, years ago they, uh, uh, which is a great little town in the Shenandoah Valley, beautiful historic architecture. Uh, and they proposed probably 25 years ago now an historic district in downtown Stanton. And it was like, you know, over my dead body. You're not going to tell me what to do with my building. And so they didn't create a historic district. But they had it created an incentive instead. And the Historic Stanton Foundation had an architect who said, well, I'll work with you and I'll provide free design assistance. He didn't say he'd pay for the renovation, but for the design of the renovation of the historic building. And so like one guy comes over and does that and this building looks great, and then a neighbor comes over and says, well, how would you do that? And then a second person did it, then a third person did it, and then five people did it. Now virtually all the buildings in downtown Stanton are restored, and guess what? Today they have five locally designated historic districts, but it all began with an incentive rather than uh, a regulation so, yeah, all of and education. I mean, why, why, why do, why do you need to use community education? Well, because uh, education reduces the need for regulation. Why do you need education, community education? Because people won't embrace what they don't understand. Why community education? Because citizens have a right to choose the future. But as Robert Grow, who r- runs Envision Utah, says, they need to know what their choices are. So education, incentives, partnerships, voluntary initiatives are one part of making a community a more successful place.
0: And a community might buy into what you're doing the more educated they are, certainly. You know, another thing that that I think is so important is this engagement and cooperation, that um, instead of planning and design being in a vacuum uh, by professionals and government leaders behind closed doors, Uh, You really promote cooperation with surrounding towns or neighborhoods. Now, that sounds good, but it's potentially very complicated. How how do you see that working?
1: Well, uh, my experience in this really comes out of my work with the National Park Service over the years uh, in their Gateway Communities Program, getting uh, national parks and their communities, which they're next to, to work more collaboratively. And when we first started that probably 30 years ago, if you were to interview a national park superintendent uh, and say, well, what's the first thing you want to do when you uh, become a superintendent to work with the community? They might say something like, well, it's to secure the boundary, they'd tell you. But the truth is now they know that you can't be successful as a public land manager unless you work cooperatively with the local community because national parks aren't islands. They'll never work. The same thing is true with local economic development. There are very few communities that are going to succeed on their own. So much of the things today are, you know, about the region. You know, things, think about air pollution or water pollution or traffic congestion or loss of green space. Almost always those issues are issues of, there's a regional problems that typically require regional solutions. And so let me give you some examples of working together. I was uh, flying down to uh, Jackson, Mississippi some years ago and, uh, the entire plane was filled with people speaking French, and I'm like, "Well, that's a little strange." And so we got into Jackson in the airport, and we were, I was getting my luggage, and I walked over to this French guy and I said, "What are you guys doing here?" Because uh, I was a little nosy, and he goes, "Well, we go to drive the Blues Highway. We go to drive the Blues Highway, you, you know." And I can tell you, there's nobody in France that's going to fly to the United States just to go to Clarksdale, Mississippi, or but they will fly from France to the United States to drive from Memphis to New Orleans through Clarksdale, Mississippi, because Mississippi has done this fantastic job of marketing Highway 71, 61, excuse me, as the blues highway. You want to drive through the history of the blues and music in America, this is where you go to do it. So they sort of work together. Let me give you another example. You know, uh, talked about the, uh, public land managers and local communities. Uh, spent a lot of time in Gettysburg, uh Pennsylvania, which is the site of course of the largest battle in the Civil War, and used to be the uh, a lot of elected officials there used to complain and moan about land off the tax rolls until of course, they did an economic development impact study of the Gettysburg National Park, and of course they f- figured out that that was the single greatest job generator and economic force in all of Adams County, Pennsylvania. And all of a sudden, things started to change. So, for example, let me tell you some things they've done in Gettysburg. Well, uh, they undergrounded all the utility wires through the middle of the battlefield. They did that in a partnership between the National Park Service, the state of Pennsylvania, Adams County, the Borough of Gettysburg, the Ted Turner Foundation, and the Civil War Battlefield Trust. Uh, they, they 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 could for many. They also did a set, set up a community wide interpretation program. They, they have, uh Pennsylvania has, uh, like a lot of states, has all these little boroughs and townships. And so the borough of Gettysburg uh, was, uh people would drive through the borough and they'd go out to the battlefield where the National Park Visitor Center was and then they would go and spend the night in another township called the New, New Oxford Township. And so they were getting very little um, sales or visitation in downtown the borough of downtown Gettysburg and partly it was because the town thought, well, that's the, the National Park Service's job to interpret the battle. And even though the battle actually went right through the middle of the town, so finally they decided to work together to create a community-wide interpretation program that in, you know went almost block by block with little historic markers. There's actually a statue of Abraham Lincoln with his arm around the tourists down, now in downtown Gettysburg. They have a mural called the Costner Avenue Mural that depicts the fighting there. They have all these outdoor interpretive things. And guess what? Uh, Within three years after they started to work together more collaboratively with the Park Service, their sales tax revenue went up by 23%. So the idea is cooperate with your neighbors for mutual benefit.
0: And and your your next one buys right into this with pay attention to community aesthetics, Um, both with the Blues Highway and also heritage. Could you speak a little bit to... um, how aesthetics isn't just about looking neat and attractive. It really speaks to the uniqueness of a place or a sense of place. Well, and Well, you know, image is, it,
1: it, the image of a community is fundamentally important to its economic well-being. Every single day, people make decisions about where to live, where to vacation, where to invest, where to retire based on what our communities look like. Uh, the National Re- Association of Realtors put it this way. They say a community's appeal drives economic prosperity. Uh, You you know, uh, the the group called CEOs for Cities, they put it this way, they said, the unique characteristics of a place may be the only truly defensible source of competitive advantage uh, for communities and regions. And so, you know, really, it's like we take stock of a city or a town like we take stock of a man. The clothes or appearance are the externals by which we judge. And let me give you an, we have a concept that we talk about in the real estate industry. It's called the place making dividend. The place making dividend. What's that mean? What it means is that people stay longer, they come back more often, and they spend more money in places that attract their affection. One of the things we've, uh, uh we've figured out in the real estate world is that the average amount of time that an American spends, for example, in a strip shopping center, has been going down for years. They just go to buy what they want and they leave. They don't hang out there. Why would anybody go to a strip mall to hang out? But they will go into a downtown, uh, to hang out, particularly if the downtown has become anim- animated with like sidewalk cafes and other people, because there's nothing that people like to do more than look at other people. And so if you, when you start to bring a place to life through placemaking, uh, and design and so on and so forth, People decide that they actually like that better and they want to stay longer and they come back more often and they spend more money. And that's the whole idea of about improving a community's aesthetics, its appearance, its character, and so on.
0: The, and finally to, to wrap up just a summary of your success, this takes strong leadership and really committed citizens, not just leaders, but certainly citizens. So if a community feels it doesn't have leaders or neighbors who buy into these concepts, you're, you're talking about what's the best way to start making the case for what you see as,
1: as really important steps for successful communities? You, you know, uh, Margaret Mead used to say that never doubt that a small group of committed individuals can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. And the, the, really what she's saying there is it doesn't take a lot of people to really change a community uh to be a better place. You know, some years ago I was giving a talk to the New York League of Municipalities or League of Towns and Townships, and I was in a little town called Canandaigua, New York. And uh after my talk, this woman came up to me and said, come on, get in the car and I want to show you something. And it turns out she's the mayor of Canandaigua, and she takes me down to there at the uh, the head of one of the Finger Lakes. And she takes me down and shows me this incredible, beautiful area that goes for more than a mile along the lake with a swimming beach and a carousel and a new hotel and uh public parks and so forth. And she said, you know, this used to be an industrial wasteland. And she said, for years, somebody would propose we do something about this. And every time that we, it was proposed, somebody would stand up and say, well, you can't do that. It costs too much. It won't work. We tried that already. And she said, I just decided that this was the most important thing we were doing, so we got it done she said, today, everybody thinks it's the greatest thing that ever happened uh, in Canandaigua. The truth is, leadership is cr- incredibly important, but oftentimes it's unappreciated. You know, uh, Monty Python has this movie called The Life of Brian. He has this incredible thing that, uh, quote I use in one of my talks. He says, uh, apart from medicine, education, wine, public order, roads, irrigation, public health, and a freshwater system, what have the Romans ever done for us? And, and that's kind of like what we, we think about our elected officials a lot of times, that we just don't appreciate the leadership that we, you know, and the truth is is that leadership can come from lots of places. It doesn't just have to be an elected official. But, you know, communities without leadership uh, are, you know, probably going to not go very many places, uh, at least in a successful way. So those are just a, a few of the sort of summary uh, thoughts about this topic.
0: And and finally, and then I want to get to uh, – we have a load of questions, and I hope everybody um, helps contribute to their answers, um, but just to kind of sum up this, many of the strategies that you've talked about are long-term. They require a lot of work and investment and good leaders. What are some of the things that people can do to get started uh, down the path to their communities? A lot of people have talked about how do we even get started with capacity building? um with um engaging our community with uh project management, some of these things that just seem a little overwhelming.
1: Well, you know, I, I think one of the, the first things that needs to happen in the community is to what I call create a forum for dialogue. Uh you know, I mentioned again I grew up in Birmingham. Birmingham was used to be the Johannesburg of America and it was a city that was brought to its knees by segregation. And part of the way they got out of that is there was a group uh, forums called Operation New Birmingham and the, uh, the the white business leadership sat down and had breakfast once a month every every month for three years with the black civil rights leadership of Birmingham. That's what really finally turned that city around. No press invited. They created a forum for dialogue instead of you know spending all the time fighting about what they disagreed about, they decided to start focusing on what they did agree about. And I think that's kind of what you need to do in a community as well. You need to start off with a, with a sort of a forum for dialogue. I also think that, you know, there's a lot of energy in communities oftentimes that's just trying to harness those energies to some broader vision or plan. And one of the, one of the mistakes I often think is that pe- people try to tackle the, the you know, the, the hardest thing first. I would always say tackle the easiest thing first because once again, nothing succeeds like success. Do the easy things to sort of show That you can do the bigger things and then it starts bringing people in. Part of the problem is that people get frustrated and they get burned out if they spend all their time in the planning process and sort of nothing ever gets accomplished. So, but you gotta start by creating, you know, a a mechanism for dialogue about what the future of that community ought to be. and maybe you start by looking at, well, what what are our assets? What can we build on? And maybe you don't have enough assets just in your town by yourself, but what about in the four towns around you working together? Uh, that Uh could, could you accomplish something more uh, like that? So there's a lot of different ways to start, but, you know, it's once again, it's this idea of, you know, think small in a big way and start talking to your neighbors about, you know, what you agree about and what you'd like to do together.
0: It's almost, uh, Josh from Virginia talks about the importance of formal and informal assemblies, from town halls to coffee houses, to build relationships in the community.
1: Um, you know, I, I, the, communities need, need those, you know, it's like the, the idea of the third place. Uh, you know, everybody needs, a, they need, you know, one of the problems we have in a lot of communities in America, there really isn't any physical place to have community unless you, you know, it's kind of hard to build community around parking lots, for example. And so, when you actually have a physical place for public gatherings, you're more likely to have public sort of you know public investment in the in a community
0: so having those third places are just as important as town hall meetings, certainly absolutely and, yeah um so in looking at some i'm going to group some of these questions there actually were two interesting um Questions from Virginia and Ohio from anonymous people, probably because they're okay. having some issues. And they talk about, um, one says, how do you merge the influx of new people with locals in a manner that keeps the soul and culture of the community uh, while keeping down strife and allowing for an exchange of ideas, of opinions? Um, and moving the community towards some harmonious existence. And, and, the, and the person from Ohio very similarly says there's a disconnect between what the residents want and what the council says they want. The council decisions trumped. There's a divide between the new and established residents. Um, and he's concerned that if we don't change that soon, there's going to be um, a problem. So the the residents want more community gathering, but it really isn't happening. So, what are, what are your thoughts around the the new versus the old timers, and how to bring those uh, those points of view together? Together.
1: Well, I mean, you, you know, once again, I think that you you, you know, oftentimes the uh, the new folks, I mean, they the people who are sort of new to a community is kind of like a tourist. They always see everything with fresh new eyes, which is kind of why they moved there in the first place. There was something about that community that attracted them, that made it appealing, that made them want to move there. But if you've lived the place all your life, you try, you tend to sort of take things for granted. You sort of tune out everything. Uh, and so, once again, you need to, to create a mechanism where those two folks can talk to each other because oftentimes they actually will have a lot more agreement about things than they think. And one way to do that is through storytelling. To get people to start telling stories to each other, well, you know what was the town like when you moved here what is, what brought you here tell me about the history of your of your family why do you care about the town you know to create mechanisms once again for people to talk with each other about what's important and once again there's a lot of very good mechanisms and i would encourage people to for example look at the orton foundation uh, website which has which has a lot of material particularly about this uh, but it really revolves around getting, c- creating a mechanism to get these two groups of so the old timers and the newcomers, uh, and you have that sort of dichotomy in virtually every community, some, you know, more than other places, you know, greater or less degree. But, you know, the places that sort of overcome that are the places that have, that have created sort of, a, as I said, a forum for dialogue so that those groups can actually get together and talk to each other about the things that really matter. Let me give you an example. Years ago, there was a, a town called Manteo, uh, North Carolina, and they, uh, they were, you know, you know doing a planning process, but they decided really to, to, to start off in a very unconventional way. They decided to ask people about what they call places of the heart. Uh, what are the places that you care about the most? And, uh, it turns out that there was a great deal of agreement about the things that people really loved about a place, like the view at the end of Main Street, for example, or the, the old pier down by the, uh, uh, the harbor and so on and so forth. And so they started off, you know, you know, one of the, one of the mistakes I think that, uh, we make in the, in the world of planning is we spend way too much time focused on dangerous. numbers, numbers of units per acre, number of cars per hour, number of floors per building. And not enough time talking about the values, the customs, the characteristics, and the quirks that make a place worth caring about. And a lot of times, it's those things that really motivate people to, to you know, sort of work together to preserve those unique things, customs, characteristics, quirks, etc.
0: And that's great, and I think you're answering a lot of the questions are, are um, kind of about that, especially for small towns and how they can find that uniqueness. Another another series of questions was also about small businesses, about motivating, uh, Stacy from Pennsylvania and also Bobby Kay from Ohio have similar in a, in a way questions. One asked, how can we motivate small businesses to connect with each other and help each other grow smaller? And the other is, is, is also interested in having small businesses bring back the excitement into a community. Um, so what is the responsibility of small businesses to help each other and to help their community become richer and stronger?
1: Well, let me say a couple of things about small business. First of all, uh, the vast majority of new jobs in America today are in small businesses. Uh, the estimates are anywhere from 90% of all new jobs occur in businesses with 20 employees or less. So they're... in key and a very critical part of our economic development future. Uh, Second, if you spend a dollar in a local store, that dollar will recirculate through that community at a rate about four times more than if you spend a dollar in a chain store. So if you spend a dollar in a Walmart, that dollar is going to pretty much end up in Bentonville, Arkansas. If you spend a dollar in a locally owned hardware store, well, it'll recirculate because that local hardware store, they have their local attorney, they have their local accountant, and they have the local ad person who does their ads for them, et cetera, et cetera. You know, it was really interesting. I just came back from three weeks uh in uh Europe, and um, they don't, in Germany in particular, they don't really have big box stores the way we do in the U.S., and you've never, er, virtually every town you go to, it's like just small businesses. I mean, so be, so there's like 40 Small businesses where we'd have one big box store, and you know we are not going to eliminate big box stores, but what you can do is through programs like the main street program uh can provide a way for small businesses to become more competitive to focus on the the what can differentiate themselves through service and through product selection and all kinds of other things, and once again, small businesses are going to be more successful when they collaborate than when they simply are c- competing. So, for example, let me just give you an example of that. We have a, a suburb outside of Washington called Bethesda. It has 200 restaurants in one square mile. And what what happened is, you know, rest, one rest you know the success of one restaurant red, led to another restaurant. And, and a lot of people would say, "Oh, I don't want to have all that competition." What but it turns out though that everybody wants to go to Bethesda to go out to eat because now there's like you got unlimited choices. Number one, and number two. there's all these people like hanging around in sidewalk cafes and it's a very interesting kind of exciting place to be and that's the same thing with local business. So one of the reasons Main Street works is they try to bring vitality back to streets. They think about things like economic restructuring and business promotion and how do we animate a street and so on and so forth. So once again, I would focus here on the idea of collaboration rather than competition.
0: Is... Is that to what degree? Someone else also asked from from Kansas. Um, should elected uh, elected officials and economic development directors be involved in this? There certainly is the Main Street program. Is it you know should should town governments really look at small businesses and do whatever well, they can? Well, every
1: to... it, it, everybody should be involved in this. I mean. You know, it's sort of you know the best communities are sort of what I call the all hands on deck communities. They're they're communities where sort of everybody starts to work together. We have a a, a program that I've been involved in for years called the Balancing Nature and Commerce in Gateway Communities course, and what we do is uh, when you go when you go to that course, people go as a team. So there's like the superintendent of the the national park, the mayor the local newspaper publisher, the head of the Chamber of Commerce, the head of the Tourism Bureau, uh two or three citizen activists, et cetera, They all come as a team, and the idea is you want to get all those people like talking to each other, working together, singing off the same song sheet, et etc. et cetera. So, yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense to get, you know. You know, leadership comes from lots of different places in a community, and typically elected officials will follow the public. They're looking for a parade to get in front of, so... The more citizens say they want something, the more things are likely to get done. So, like, it's, what's politically inconceivable today is inevitable tomorrow when enough people say they want it to be different.
0: And, and finally, Ed, and also, uh, I'm sorry, I am I'm hogging um, Ed. I know, but I'm trying to I'm trying to include all your questions since there's so many people. Somebody's really needs to jump on. You can press pound six, and we'll try to take your questions. And while you're thinking about doing that, if Ed could speak to sustainability, how do you sustain the energy of uh volunteers uh to uh, sustain people at keeping the vision alive, just keeping some of these
1: processes going? Well, you know, once again, I, I think, you know, you, you need to find ways to create success along the way. So, also, you need to most successful communities, you know, are, have have created a dynamic where new people are constantly going in to this process of community revitalization and renewal, and other people are maybe stepping back because it does take a lot of time, it takes energy, it takes commitment, and so forth. But so you want to nurture, uh, new people. You want to nurture particularly young people to, to get involved, uh, in, in communities. And you also want to figure out ways to build sort of, uh, you know, incremental successes. I mean, I, just give me an example. Years ago, I was involved in a, a, community visioning effort, uh, in, in a town in Virginia. And they had, it went through a great process and they, decided uh they had a long list of things that they wanted to do, and the thing that was the hardest thing on the list was city-county consolidation of services. Well, unfortunately, they decided to try to tackle that first, and two years later, after the, one of the biggest political fights ever in that part of the world, they did not accomplish city-county consolidation of services, and everything else on the list was forgotten. So, you know, once again, start with some of the smaller things, and then, it becomes easy to to get other people excited when you can show them that there's, you know, these little things can slowly start to add up to make a bigger difference.
0: Thank you, Ed. And do we have, um, is somebody on the line that um, wants to press pound six and is pressed to ask Ed a personal question? Besides, someone wrote in actually asking if you'd um, shaved your mustache,
1: Ed. But no, I've won't. never shaved
0: my mustache. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Hi, I have a question. I shaved, my, I shaved my mustache when I was in basic training in the Army. That was the last time.
0: Uh, we, have, we have someone on the line. Go ahead. Hi, my name is Jennifer and I'm from Ohio, but not the other Ohio questions. I do have a question about how do you create an environment where there is always a renewal of new people who want to be involved in these efforts, or young people who want to be involved. That's where we are in our community. How do we develop leadership, some sort of a leadership funnel in our, in our community?
1: Well, you know, it's interesting. A lot of, uh, a lot of communities and a number of states, uh, have set up these what, uh, called like Leadership Ohio, Leadership Alabama, Leadership Virginia, et cetera. And these are actually programs that are designed specifically to really sort of train and network a new generation of leaders. Uh, and, you know, so in part of that it actually takes sort of going to, you know, thinking about, you know, what are the leadership, what's the leadership structure in a community? Is it the, you know, Rotary Club? Is it the Garden Club? Is it the Women's, uh, uh, Junior League? What, you know, and maybe getting somebody from each of those groups to agree that they'll, you know, one person from each of those groups will participate, but then the next year somebody else from that group might participate. And you know, it also oftentimes it takes you know, you know, one of the things that one of the ways I think that public engagement has broken down is that many uh, of us in the planning world have simply we'll announce a public hearing and then just whoever wants to come can come. And one of the things that we've figured out is we have to go to the go where the people are sometimes. So you know, a lot of people are busy. You know, they, they got their raising their kids. They got they're involved with the PTA and they're so on and so forth. So. Sometimes what we need to do is take these ideas out to other groups and organizations. And, you know, the people who are involved in the PTA, the, you know, community revitalization of, I don't know, what Kenya Kenyon, Ohio or whatever, that's not going to be their top thing. But they might be supportive and, and somebody else in that group might step forward. So we have to go out to others, not just wait for them to come to us. And I think that we need to create to network with the other leadership groups that already exist in a community.
0: I see. So start breaking down boundaries as opposed to, well, I only do PTA? Well, I only do community yeah, exactly. revitalization. Well, I only no, do business. Yeah. That's so you deal exactly with that.
1: right. Yep. Got
0: it. Thank you so much.
1: One of the things that I wanted to mention a little bit more about was this idea of building around uh, assets. I was uh, involved in uh, New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. I was among the with a, uh, was invited to uh, New Orleans by Mayor Ray Nagin uh, along with a group of other planners and architects and so on, and they w- wanted us to help put together a redevelopment plan for the city. And, and one of the things, of course, they said was, well, we don't want just a physical redevelopment plan. We want an economic redevelopment plan. And so we, of course, said, well, tell it, what are the, what's the biggest industry in Louisiana? Uh, is it the oil industry, the sugar industry, the chemical industry? uh uh And what they ended up saying was, no, it's none of those things. The biggest industry in Louisiana is the tourism industry. And what's the engine of that industry? Well, it's the French Quarter. And, you know, it's, what's so ironic about that is that nobody would have thought about the French Quarter or the other historic neighborhoods in a place like New Orleans as being economic assets, the same way we would think about a plant, a factory, or a distribution center. But it turns out that's more important and more valuable than any single plant factor distribution center in the entire state and so it's like it's once again it's about thinking about economic development in a, in a in a sort of a different kind of way another example of that is San Antonio Texas the San Antonio Riverwalk the number one most visited place in the state of Texas uh gets uh the basis of that city's multi billion dollar year annual tourism ministry. But what most people don't know is that at one point in the past, the city council of San Antonio thought so little of that river, they wanted to put it actually underground into a culvert. And today, they've just actually extended it 10 miles because it's the most visited place uh in Texas. So asset mapping, thinking about what your assets are, you know, the new economy, sort of our assets are very different oftentimes than they were in the past.
0: Thank you so much, Ed. I, I'm afraid we're, we're out of time. There are a couple questions that we, we didn't get to. Uh, we intend to have a blog post that we, um, we hope that you will respond to. So it is, again, that wisdom of the crowd uh, that we have. we have. It's been incredible to listen to you, Ed, um, about these things. And, and I think that people do have some ideas about what they might start doing next week or next month. Um, from many of the things that you've said. So um, I want to thank you very much, Ed.
1: Well, I want to thank uh, the Citizens Institute for Rural Design and the uh Orton Family Foundation for sponsoring this call and for inviting me to be on it. I also want to mention that I uh, wrote an article recently on this topic called The Secrets of Successful Communities, which is uh, published by Planners' Web uh and the Planning Commissioner's Journal. So if people are interested in learning more about some of the things I will talk about today, they might want to... Uh, uh look at the planners web uh website and I think they may also have posted it on the Orton family uh website as well.
0: Yes, so and we will we, you bet. It, this has been a really terrific um we hope that everybody adds to the Google Doc. Uh continue look look at it today, add your wisdom to the questions, add some more questions. They'll they'll be um it'll be a quite lively um today. Uh, and then Orton will do a follow-up blog post with the responses. That will all be sent out, so you'll all have the wisdom of everybody on this line. Um, so they will be emailed to all and posted online at the Community Matters website. We will also have links to um, the site that Ed was just speaking about and other sites that you um, offer and that we come up with. So um, we also hope that you watch for information in the next few weeks about our fall CM calls, which will include a series on play, which is, um, and why that's essential to help communities build vibrant places and make sound decisions and engage um, citizens. We are so excited that there were so many organized listening parties today across the country, We think this is an exciting idea, and we are so so pleased that you organized those, and we hope that that will become something that we can continue to do. So thank you all for participating, and thanks to Ed. We want to say good luck to everybody with Strengthening Your Town, um, and uh, hopefully you're armed with new insights. I want to say that the callers from our four CIRD communities can stay online for a closed session for the next half hour. Um, but for everybody else, I'm Fran Slaughter for the Orton Family Foundation. We hope you join us again next.